I will be honest, kind of ran into a wall this month. It's been tough staying afloat while finishing tour and the special. By the time came to do the podcast this month, I had nothing left in the tank. When guest composer Kareem Walker sent me some initial pieces of score, I despaired. They were so beautiful and gave ideas I couldn't adequately follow through on in the amount of time we had. So we will do an incredible episode about local music stores next month. And for this month, that's it. Good night. All right, sorry to joke. You got to get to sleep. So I've got another idea. Since I did the original sleep special, I've received a number of comments along the lines of, I could listen to you read the menu. Pretty much anything. So this month, let's put that to the test. In addition to the many tomato knickknacks I received on tour, I keep a lot of books and articles around in my basement. should probably get rid of them. When my attention starts to wane while writing, I figure it's better to poke around some book than the internet. In a creative rut, I will occasionally turn to poetry, but more likely, I'm opening up the World Encyclopedia of Fruit to see where limes come from. I turn to the citrus section and it says, India. Attempts were made to grow them in Mediterranean countries, but they proved insufficiently hardy. They do very well in Egypt, however, where they are more plentiful than lemons. Should I keep going? It continues. There are basically three types of lime. Tahitian, large limes with pale, fine-grained pulp and a very acidic flavor. Mexican, a smaller fruit, with bright green skin and very aromatic flavor. Key lime, pale yellowish green fruit, very juicy with a strong sharp flavor. And kefir limes, which are not true limes. Kefir limes are not eaten, but the finely grated rind is used in Southeast Asian cooking. Sometimes the answer to writer's block is some fun facts, an attractive picture of oranges, to learn about a new type of exotic fruit like Kiruba, also called banana passion fruit. I really hope to do an episode of the TV show where me and Gene try exotic fruits and describe the flavors to one another, but what are you gonna do? While working on my bathroom book, I bought a set of the Practical Encyclopedia of Good Home Decorating and Home Improvement published in the 70s, that I enjoy a lot. There's some truly wild stuff in there. Say what you want about covering an entire living room wall with wood shingles. They weren't afraid of taking risks back then. Color either. A skirt of white and gray is spreading. I grabbed volume 17, opened it, and here's what it has to say about texture. Texture is the music of surfaces, and the notes are many and distinct. The smoothness of silk, the prickliness of burlap, the deep glow of polished wood, 
the cool irregularity of Fieldstone. These are just a few of the great number of textural voices that can be orchestrated to provide rich and satisfying harmonies in decorating. No one dares go this hard writing about modern decorating or modern decorating. The Property Brothers just want to paint your brick fireplace white and there's nothing you can do about it. Sorry. To see these photos of what is possible in a home but now forsaken gets me going. Why aren't we taking bigger swings? Bigger swings and bigger falls. There is also an article by my desk that I had printed out titled Five Largest Slip and Fall Cases in History. I think it's because I searched for biggest blooper of all time. It's fun in theory, but I should probably skip reading it. Everyone got good settlements, but many got severely injured. You don't need to think about falling into holes before bed. I should probably throw it out but I do have a hard time getting rid of things. That's why I have an 18-volume set of home decorating books. I also have a set of encyclopedias on the supernatural, and it's a wonderful place to poke around for ideas. Here's a segment titled Man Wallaby in the section about animals. In Australia, even today, when an aborigine say he is, for example, wallaby, he means what he says. He and the wallaby species are one flesh. Except in special circumstances, he does not kill or eat a wallaby, and he and his group are responsible for carrying out the rituals which ensure a plentiful supply of wallabies for everyone else. This is because he and the wallabies are descended from the same ancestor, a hero long ago who was both a man and a wallaby. If that doesn't inspire some ideas, I don't know what will. And the series includes a wide range of beliefs throughout history. Volume 1 has bits about All Hallows' Eve, Alphabet, Altar, and a section on the properties of the aloe plant. I enjoy the part in the Angels section titled Wing Measurements, which quotes Crawford H. Greenwald's approximation of how large an angel's wings would need to be, assuming a weight of 150 pounds. Of course. The wing from wrist to tip would be about 4 feet long, its total length between 6 and 7 feet. When folded neatly into the body, the end of the wing would come just below the knee, comfortable enough for perching and walking. The wings would beat about once every second, a nice easy rhythm, not too far from a normal walking pace. The wings would, however, be heavy, perhaps a quarter of the weight of the body, and alas, here lies the rub. The human frame hasn't the pectoral muscles to drive such formidable gear. Human pectorals are barely 5% of the total body weight, and a reasonable aerial job would call for at least 15%. And passage. Now that's something to think about before bed. 
angels with enormous pecs. That'd be something. Pecs so big they comprise 15% of body mass. More practically, I have the printed out Wikipedia article about drown proofing on the wall next to my desk. It reads, Drown proofing was developed by swimming coach Fred Lanoue. It was first taught in 1940. His method was so successful that it gained national recognition and Georgia Tech soon made it a requirement for graduation until 1988. I wonder what happened then. The U.S. Navy also took interest and adopted it as part of their standard training. It is claimed that during Lanou's time teaching at Tech from 1936 to 1964, he taught drown proofing to some 20,000 students. Once they had mastered the drown proofing technique, students learned to stay afloat with their wrists and ankles bound, swim 50 yards, 46 meters, underwater, and retrieve diving rings from the bottom of the pool using their teeth. Continuing on, in drown-proofing terminology, the great majority of people are floaters. That is to say that, with the lungs fully inflated, they have slightly less specific gravity than water and will not start to sink until they exhale. An average floater has three to four pounds of positive buoyancy in fresh water. Sinkers can also benefit from a modified technique but will find it more difficult to learn and will probably need specialized coaching. Wondering if I am a sinker or floater myself. I don't know why I printed it and put it up for reference. Drown proofing sounds like the title of a Netflix film where Jennifer Lopez stars as a Navy SEAL torn between duty and horny. Similarly pessimistic, Ryan sent me a speech written for Richard Nixon in the case that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did not survive the moon landing. From Bill Sapphire, July 18th, 1969, in the event of moon disaster. Sorry, I should preface it by saying that I'm not going to do a Nixon impression. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by the nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked up at the stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. 
In modern times, we do the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Well, I'm glad no one had to read that for real. That reminds me, on my computer desktop, underneath some other photos, I keep a screenshot of a quote by Picasso. Asked by a French newspaper about the moon landing in 1969, he responded, It means nothing to me. I have no opinion about it, and I don't care. It always makes me laugh. <laughs> I wanted to end by reading something nice, and I knew I had found just the thing when I picked up an issue of the Portland Press Herald in Maine. This article on the front page with the headline, Weather isn't expected to dampen yields of Maine's wild blueberries. The article by Hannah LeClaire goes, Growers anticipate a robust season, despite challenges thrown at them earlier in the year. News doesn't get more positive than this. Maine's commercial blueberry harvesters are anticipating a strong season despite an inauspicious start. The state's signature fruit has proven resilient. Last year's drought conditions stressed the plants in the first of their two-year cultivation cycle, slowing and stunting the growth of some. Then, several frosts, including one in mid-May, wiped out several low-lying blueberry fields entirely. Some worried that heavy rain in June and July would be another strike against blueberries, and that growers could face the same disappointing start to the season as strawberry farmers. And while the rain did delay some blueberries from turning their eponymous blue, the rain has primarily been a boom for both the thirsty berries and their farmers. This was perfect timing for the blueberries. They love rain, said Lily Calderwood, wild blueberry specialist for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Following a strong bloom, Calderwood said she expected the bumper crop this year until the spring frost threatened to upend the season. But with all the rain, the berries, which could have been small after last year's drought, plumped right up. Heavier berries mean more money in the per pound business. See berries, page A6. I think the rain we had made up for some of the loss we had from the frost event, she said. Wild blueberries are grown in the two-year production cycle that alternates between a prune year and a crop year, according to the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Following the harvest in late summer, plants are pruned to the ground by mowing or burning. The following year, the stem, leaves, and buds grow. 
Then, in the second year, the plants bloom and produce berries. Then the cycle repeats. Wild blueberry farmers typically split their acreage between the two cycles in order to harvest the crop every year. It's too early to say what will happen next year, but Calderwood said the rain bodes well for the next harvest. It will likely give enough blueberries, enough energy and resources to make for healthier and fuller buds. Quality looks good. Bruce Hall, director of agroecology at Wyman's, was skeptical heading into the harvest season, but he's been pleasantly surprised by the high quality of fruit he's seen, both from their own fields and from the approximately 450 farms they buy from. With 18,000 acres, Wyman's is the second largest wild blueberry grower in the state. They lost a few fields to the frost, but it won't have a substantial impact on the business, Hall said. The June rains helped with the fruit sizing, and the recent cooling temperatures and lower humidity will help the blueberries stay in peak condition. Their quality deteriorates as it gets hotter. While the rain has ultimately been positive, Hall stressed that in farming, nothing is ever black and white. The hot, wet conditions in June and July introduced a significant amount of leaf disease to the crop, which can increase the plant's vulnerability to drought conditions if weather patterns change and the current drier spell continues. Wyman's will harvest through mid-September, and in the meantime, Hall said they will focus on plant health. Recovering from frost. For Sonia Howard, whose family owns Rhodus blueberries and hope, the saving grace this year was a sunny pollination season. The bees worked hard during that time, so the blossom was good, she said. We got a lot of rain, but the blueberries had already set. The real challenge was that late frost which killed about 15 acres of blueberry fields. Howard says they were lucky. The 15 acres were only a fraction of the 162-acre farm that they were insured. Other farmers with lower-lying fields lost a lot more. Brodus was still able to turn things around in time for the harvest season, which started July 22nd and will likely wrap up by August 6th. Overall, Howard is optimistic. Our yield is average, and the weather has been cooperating. Is coming along pretty well, she said. Lisa Hanscom, who owns Welch Farm in Roke Bluffs, has had a love-hate relationship with the rain this year. Welch Farm was lucky to escape the frost, but Hanscom said the rain and subsequent lack of sun set back the ripening. They were growing, but they weren't turning blue, she said. Because of this, Hanscom won't start harvesting until Wednesday more than a week later than usual. But last year's drought was the bigger problem. Last season's berries didn't grow well, and while customers enjoyed the more intense flavor of the smaller berries, their weight didn't add up to much. On the heels of that, she's been happy to see the rain. Roller Coaster Yields Maine is one of the world's hubs for wild blueberries and the only U.S. state where they are commercially harvested. There are approximately 
480 wild blueberry farms that range in size from 20 acres to thousands of acres. The size of Maine's wild blueberry harvest dropped by 26% or 27.5 million pounds in 2022 after a near record harvest the previous year, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Last year's crop was valued at 55.5 million, down from 80.3 million in 2021. Experts expected similar results to the 2021 bounty of 104 million pounds, but following a perfect storm of poor weather conditions, harvesters eked out just 77.6 million pounds last year. The state's all-time peak was 110 million pounds in 2000. Last year's drop isn't necessarily a harbinger of a declining blueberry industry. Harvest data has been all over the map in the last 10 years, with a low of 47.4 million pounds in 2020 and a high of 104.4 million pounds in 2014. Over the last decade, the weight has averaged out to about 82.1 million pounds. Still, blueberries are especially dependent on weather, and for some farmers, basing their livelihood around the colorful fruits is becoming more challenging in the face of climate change. More droughts, late frost, the disappearance of pollinators like honeybees, heavy rain, and other changes in weather patterns make the growing season hard to predict. The vast majority of Maine's wild blueberries are frozen. The fresh market fetches a much higher price per pound, but only about 5% to 10% of the harvested berries are sold in the fresh market, said Calderwood, the Maine blueberry specialist. Both Hanscom and Howard have had to diversify their income streams and are working to increase their fresh market and retail offerings. Welsh Farm has been in Hanscom's family since 1912. Over the years, she's boosted the farm's involvement in agro-tourism, adding rental cabins and farm tours. The farm is right on the ocean, with a picturesque view and stunning sunsets from one of the fields. So Hanscom is toying with the idea of renting the space for marriage proposals and intimate weddings. She's also working to increase their retailed offerings like jams, jellies, and wreaths. Rhodus Blueberries is also a longtime family-run operation, with nine generations working in the fields, Howard said. She hopes to see more. They have a distillery in the barn where they make spirits out of blueberries and other fruits. They offer cocktails Thursday through Saturday, and bottles of the alcohol are also for sale. What we're working on is more value-added products like jams and pies to increase the overall profits of the farm so that hopefully this generation doesn't have to be the one that sells it, she says. I hope these readings were interesting, but did the trick and that you're feeling sleepy. Big episode next month about local music shops with Karima Walker. Music by Ryan Dan. Produced by Grant Farsi for Chestnut Walnut.
Thank you for making this podcast possible with your support on Patreon. But especially this month, the links are Connor E. and Dylan H. Good night.